So here's the deal. If you haven't been here with us, we're in the middle of a series. This is week three of a six-week series, and it's a series called Made to Be, and we're simply talking about what God's heart, his dream, his purpose for men and women are, uh, what he has to say about the genders. And so as we've been having this conversation, I just want to start by saying this. I've heard from you. Many of you, I'm getting tons of feedback, and I so appreciate that. A lot of it's just been encouraging. Some of you asking questions. And uh, I've heard people not only here, but uh, I'm hearing from people in uh, places like Florida and Maryland and places like that. And so we're glad to hear those questions. I want to tell you kind of where we're going to go with some of these questions. Week six, week six, the last week of this series, I'm going to take the last half of that sermon and uh, I'm going to answer some questions out loud from up here uh, that I received, okay? So I'm not going to answer all the questions, but some questions about, hey, I'm somebody who's struggling. Uh, How do I deal with that? I'm somebody who maybe is confused in this area, or maybe uh, it's a question I'm receiving from uh, gals after last week and they're saying, hey, what in the world (laughs) do we do if, uh, if we're married to, uh, to a little boy who shaves, and uh, like, how does a woman navigate that? In fact, we're going to talk some about that in the next two weeks following this. So just things like that we're just going to talk about out loud, and I'll answer some of those questions. So I want you to come be a part of that, uh, and I thank you for your feedback. What we've said in this series is the reason we're having this conversation is there's a lot of confusion, right? That confusion has led to chaos, and not only that, but there's distortions, and those distortions have led people somehow to think that's the stereotypes that, that kind of define manhood and womanhood. We've said this, the church needs to find its voice and needs to find its tone, not just its voice, but its tone. And so what we said week one was this, and I want to say this every week, and I hope I remember to do this, the church needs to be a safe place for those who are struggling. The church needs to be a safe place for those who are struggling, listen close, not done, as we bring clarity to confusion, as we bring direction into distortion. What we said week one is, is this whole idea of gender, not only identifying it, but the roles of gender has become a social construct in our culture. I'm not saying that's a good thing. In fact, I would say that's not a good thing, right? Because our society gets to determine it. It kind of changes with each generation. And yet when you look at God's story, he'd say, no, no, this idea of gender, uh, both identity and roles is something that is rooted in creation. We have said this. This is the overarching sentence for the series, that gender is rooted in the story of creation and it is redeemed at the foot of the cross. It is rooted in the story of creation. And so The first week, we simply went back to creation and said, what can we learn? And here's what we learned. This is all by way of review. If you weren't here, go back to week one, foundational week. We were made on purpose by a God who had a purpose and he made us for a purpose. So we've been created. There is a God who created us. That's that's the place you got to start because that God who created us is the one who gives us value. Whether you're a man or a woman, we get our value from the fact we've been created in his image. Equal rights is not a modern phenomenon. Equal rights is as old as time. God created us equally in his image with value, equal value. Yet, yet this God who created us on purpose, for purpose, is this grand designer who had this beautiful design. And so what this grand designer did was he made us with distinct differences, out of his beautiful design. And so our genders were things that he gave to us on purpose, intentionally, by design. 
And I would say in some part, he gave us our gender to serve the other gender in large part, right? They're gifts that have been given to us. And so as we begin to unwrap this last week, we started beginning by talking to the men. And last week, I just simply talked to men. And we began talking about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to man up? There's all these stereotypes. We laughed, had a good time with them. We say, what in the world does it mean to be a man? And, and we said this, that we wanted to see what separates men from boys. Because Paul said this, he said, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And so here's all we said last week, and it's going to get us where we're going today. That, that men are simply careful and responsible. They are, they are careful and responsible. In other words, we said it this way. They are responsible caretakers of what God has given them and entrusted them to take care of. Men work, boys play. Men embrace responsibility, boys avoid it. Men cultivate what has been entrusted to them. Boys neglect it. That's what we said. And where society sees men abdicating their responsibility, avoiding it, society begins to break down. The home begins to break down. Marriages get compromised. Men embrace that. Not only that, we said this. Men are sacrificial leaders. Men protect. Boys hurt. Men give. Boys take. That's what we said last week. Which led us to this. The last thing we said was this, is that men are spiritual guardians. Men stand watch over what's been entrusted to them. So if you're a dad, you stand watch over your family. If you're married, you stand watch over your marriage. If you're you're single, you stand watch over your life. That's what it means. And you spiritually stand watch to guard from things that are threatening coming in and inviting in things that bring life. This morning, I want to talk to the guys. Next week, I'm going to begin a two-week conversation with the gals, okay? So I want you to be here. If you're a guy, you need to be here, right? Gals, obviously, you need to be here, okay? It's going to be a great conversation. I'm actually going to have some help with it. You'll see what I mean. I have some, some people who are going to help me with it. It's going to be a fascinating two weeks. Today, I want to have week two talking to the guys, and I want to have a very, very serious conversation with the guys, and I want to allow the women to listen. Is that Okay. Listen, I'm going to say, I said this last week, gals, if you're here with your guy, please don't help me preach this sermon today. I mean it, okay? If you could have my viewpoint, I see, boom, this kind of stuff. I see like this going on. Don't do that, okay? And don't go home and re-preach the sermon. He don't need that, right? Here's the deal. But you need to hear what I'm getting ready to say because what I want to talk about today is how in the world do we measure manhood? What is the measure of a man? Our culture tries to measure men, right? Try to measure men. In fact, you hear terms like this, he's a man's man. You ever heard that? He's a man's man. Like, what in the world is that, right? Or, or even maybe worse yet, I don't know, he's a ladies man, right? What in the world does that mean? In fact, I was listening to a guy speak. You maybe have heard of the name, maybe you haven't. His name was Vody Bachman. He said, our culture measures manhood with three Bs. We measure, and, 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 and he's, uh, he's generalizing, but in large part, he's correct. That men, okay, this is, this, we know this, that men measure manhood with three Bs. The ball field, what kind of athlete are you? The bedroom, right? And so that's what guys as teenagers, they talk about that kind of stuff. The bedroom, the ball field, and the billfold, right? How much money do you make? And a lot of times as men in our culture, that's the way we measure manhood. And so the question becomes, how do you measure manhood and whether somebody is a man and truly a man's man or, or a really a successful man or the right kind of man? And the question that we're going to ask today is, what if we threw that away and said, how does God measure men? Because God has a measure for men. 
And when God measures a man, it, it is, it's different than sometimes we measure. And that's why you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 16, because I want to tell you, for some of you, a familiar story. Others of you, maybe you've never heard it before. But the story in 1 Samuel 16 is this. You simply, in 1 Samuel 16, are being dropped into the middle of a story. In the middle of the story that you're dropped into is about the people of Israel, and they clamored for a king. We want a king. We want a king. And so God gave them a king. And the very first king of Israel, his name was Saul. And if you read about Saul, he was a man's man. He was tall and handsome and well-built and a warrior. He was probably a man's man and a lady's man. I mean, he was the man. He stood heads and shoulders above the rest of the men. And yet Saul, if you read the story, he rejected what God wanted him to do. And so therefore, this man who was a man's man, because he didn't want to listen to God, he no longer was God's man. And God rejected him as king. And so what happened when he rejected him as king, he comes to a guy, God comes to a guy named Samuel. He was a prophet. You're like, well, it's a prophet. Well, just think this for today. He was kind of like a preacher or a spiritual leader. And he says, Samuel, I want you to go find my man to be the next king. I want you to find the man that I want to lead my people. And I want you to go to the house of Jesse. Jesse was a man who had all these sons. And he said, the next king of Israel, my man is one of his sons. Samuel went to Jesse's house. When he got there, out came Jesse's oldest boy. His name was Eliab. He was a man's man. He came out, he's strong, he's a warrior, right? He was tough. He was the oldest. He's a man's man. Certainly, this has to be God's man. This has to be the one God chose to be the man. And yet, God says to Samuel, that's not my man. Because I don't measure, listen close, men the same way everybody else does. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says this, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the, say it out loud, the heart. When God measures a man, he measures his heart. And so Jesse says, well, if it's not my oldest, he brings out his boys one by one by one. And God says, no, 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 no. Gets to the end. He's like, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, well, I got this young'un. I didn't invite him in. He's kind of a boy compared to these guys. He's out watching the sheep. Go ask him to come in. His name was David. David came in in chapter 16, verse 12. You can see it in your Bibles. God said, that's the man. That's the man that, that God would describe as a man after my own heart. That's the one I want you to anoint king of Israel. What's the point? When God's looking for a man, when he's looking for men, he's looking at the heart of a man. He's not looking at the outward appearance. He's not looking at the achievements. He's looking at the attitude. When God's looking for a man, he's not looking at somebody who's cool. He's looking for somebody who's got character. When God's looking for a man, he's not looking for a man who's got bravado. He's looking for a man who has humble bravery. When God's looking for a man, he's not looking for a man that all these people admire. He's looking for a man that admires him. When God's looking for a man, he's looking at the heart. What difference does that make? Everybody look here a second, because this sermon applies 
Everybody in the room, no matter who you are, some of you, I'm looking at you and you're single gals, older, younger, doesn't matter. And you're like, man, I want to find a man. I want to find a man to spend my life with. And what we're going to look at today is simply this. I want you to find a man that God would look at and say, there's a man after my own heart. For you young single gals, I would tell you this. Some of you are young adults and I hang out with you on Sunday night. And if you're a young adult in this room, come tonight, 7 o'clock, right here to the church building. Me and a panel of people are going to answer some questions. Our young adults ask us about the genders and manhood and womanhood and things like that. I want you to be here. If you're 18 to 29, be here tonight, okay? 7 o'clock, downstairs in the cafe. About 40, 50 young adults come hang out with us. We're going to have a blast together, play some games, and answer some questions. You young gals in the room, here's what I would say. This is worth writing down. If God looks at the heart, then here's my encouragement to you. When you find a man and you're wondering if this is the man, ready? Reach out, write this down, reach out for his heart before you ever reach out for his hand. Get to know his heart before you, listen, I'm going to tell you this because I'm a man. The minute it starts getting physical, all kinds of conversations get diluted and polluted. Reach out for his heart. He's a man. He'll allow you to see his heart. Look at his heart. Why? Because God says that's how I measure a man. All the, the, the boys and the men in the room, if this is how God measures a man, then I want to listen to what he has to say. What does it mean for me to be a man? That God would look at and say, there's a man after my heart, right? All the parents in the room, listen to me. Some of you are parents raising little men. You're raising little men. And if God says, this is what matters to me, here's what it makes me think. It makes me think that we live in a day and age when parents will spend Thousands of dollars to get their kids coaching so they can jump higher, run faster, hit the ball further. And I love sports, right? I love all that. My, my boys were into sports. But it makes me think, well, I invest the same energy, even money, to make sure that I'm investing in training something that's going to matter for my young fellow as a man. Paul says this. He says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You see, what we're going to take a look at today has everything to do about what does God look for and look at when he looks at men. A guy named D.L. Moody, he was a preacher long ago, said this, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in and by the man who's fully and wholly consecrated to him. I will try my utmost to be that man. So what does that mean? Well, when you look at the life of David, here's what's happening. Samuel comes and anoints us. You're going to be the next king. Now listen. You're like, what did David do? He went back out and watched some sheep. He wasn't the king right away. He went back out and watched some sheep and his brothers. Guess what they did? They went off to war. They went off to war against their arch rivals, the Philistines. In fact, when you get to this part of the story, they're, they're literally in, in a war with the Philistines. The Israelites on one side of the valley, get there with me, get the picture, and the Philistines on the other side. The problem was this, the Philistines had a champion. They had a champion that they sent out to challenge the Israelites. His name was, you've heard the story, Goliath. Goliath was Shaquille O'Neal on steroids, right? He was like nine feet tall. He had all the equipment. He was a warrior. And day after day, he would come out and challenge the men of the Israelite army. And this is what he would come out. And he would say, this day I defy the armies of Israel, Goliath would say. 
Give me a what? Man. He's like, I'm not going to a man. I'm defying you. I'm defying the armies of Israel, God's army. I'm defying you. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Look at this. Hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelite men were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days, for 40 days, 40 days, Goliath came out and looked at these weathered warriors, these men, and challenged him. And for 40 days, these men turned and ran. In the middle of that, in the middle of that, Jesse calls out to his son David, who's out watching the sheep, playing his harp, doing all that kind of stuff. He's like, hey, David, your, boy, your brothers, they're on the front line. I want you to take a care package to them. I want you to take some food to them. David's like, awesome. I want to see what's going on, right? So David gets the care package, and he runs to where his brothers are, and he gets right in the front line of the, the battle, right amongst all the men. So here's this boy with a care package amongst all these men. And while David's there, Goliath comes out and does the same thing he's done for 40 days. And when he shouts in defiance of the men of Israel, the men do the same thing they've done for 40 days. They run in fear, which leads David to ask the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's like, who is this dude? Like, like David's like, aren't we the army of God? Like, like this boy is asking this question. They repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, that's David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger. And he asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those sheep in the wilderness? Like, shouldn't you be tending some sheep? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David's like, what have I done? Can't I even talk? You don't see the brother thing going on, right? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. Look at this, look at this. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. Everybody look here. Saul is who? He's the king. This boy with a care package, all of a sudden what he's saying makes its way to the king. And so the king, Saul, sends for the boy with the care package. And David, the boy who just a few hours before was tending sheep, playing his harp, with care package in hand, stands before the king of the men of Israel. And he says to the king, king, are you with me? Are you picturing this? Like this almost becomes too familiar. He says, king, I don't want anybody to lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Are you guys with me? Like this boy's out watching sheep and he's got the care package and he's talking to the king, the guy who's been in battle. And he says, don't worry, I got it covered. See, what's fascinating is when you read about this story, David came onto a situation and that situation was not acceptable. And because it was not acceptable, it caused him to speak up. 
And David ran to the front of that battle line, a boy among, among men. And what happened by the end of the day is we found that David was the only man among boys because he decided, I'm gonna speak up. There's something unacceptable about what's happening here. I'm gonna ask some questions. The answers might be uncomfortable, but I can't stand by and be quiet. And I'll even go stand in front of the king and say what I'm thinking. Shows me something about a man after God's own heart, and I want you to write it down. Men speak up. Men find their voice. Men know the power of their words. Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Men, men who know the power of words will speak up in the middle of situations that are unacceptable. Men who know the power of their words will speak up and ask hard questions, even if they lead to uncomfortable answers. Men who speak up will speak up and train the next generation. They'll speak up and share their story with the next generation. I've shared this with you before. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible to me is all that generation were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them, and they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why? Because nobody spoke up. Nobody spoke up and shared the stories of what God had done. Men, men who know the power of their words, listen, will speak up and with their words breathe courage into the life of their children. Men who know the power of their words will speak up and speak healing and hope and treasure into the life of their wife. Men who speak up and know the power of their words will speak words of identity into the lives of the people that they've been entrusted. Men who know the power of their words know the power of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 20, 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Stop for a minute. Everybody look here. Men, you know what I'm getting ready to say because we're men. Let's just ha- we're in the locker room hanging out. And you and I both know that it is so easy for us men when we do talk to talk in corrupting ways. Can I say something that may get me in trouble and I don't care? But, but, but I'm going to say it. The public discourse today, no matter where you land, politically, doesn't matter to me. And you'll never know where I do. The public discourse today is divisive and diabolical. Men who are engaging in talk that cuts women down. Men who are engaging in talk that snidely and with sarcasm will make fun of women and children, society, and even other men. Paul says, men, let no corrupting talk. It's easy to do locker room talk, (laughs) kind of sarcastically, so that we can make our point, so that people will agree with us, get around a bunch of guys that all have the same persuasion as us, make fun of those who don't. Let no corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion 
that it may give grace to those who hear. Men understand the power of their words. Not only that, but men understand the importance of their tone. Amen? Anybody amen that? It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. Right? Here's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Some of these verses are worth writing down and putting on a card somewhere. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You ever notice that? The way you serve your words can make all the difference. Right? Can make all the difference. If I am having a squabble with my wife, and we do have squabbles, by the way, ask her, right? Often, sometimes we do, and sometimes not. We go through stages. If I look at her and I don't understand why we're having it, and I say, sweetheart, I don't understand why you're so upset. Do you think that's inviting for a conversation? Sure. If I look at her and say, I don't understand why you're so upset. Do you think that's inviting? No way. That girl can fight, baby. (laughs) And we're on. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Soft answer. Turns away wrath. Not only that, gracious words like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Men, look here. Okay, I've been doing this 25 years, and so I feel like maybe I, have, I, I can share from experience. I can tell you, I meet with women who are married to men that are starving. Their soul is starving to hear from us words of sweetness, words of nourishment. I'll have guys come in all the time and say, she knows, she already knows, right? I provide a roof over her head, food. She knows I love her. No, she doesn't. She doesn't. Your words have power. Colossians says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He said, I want your words to be full of grace. Importance of my tone. You see, Jesus told us something about our words when he said this. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My mouth just gushes forth what's already in my heart. Here's the deal. God measures a man. He's looking at the heart. And my mouth speaks out of the overflow of what's in my heart. Right? It matters not only what I say, the power of the content of my words, but also in how they're delivered in the tone of my words. That's not all. David was simply obeying his dad's orders. And suddenly, in the middle of just obeying his dad's orders, he finds himself in a giant-sized situation. And he goes before the king and he says, I'll go. Can you imagine that? Like with his care package, I'll go. Like Saul's got all these weathered warriors, all these guys that have fought many battles. He's got a boy with a care package saying, I'm your guy. Leads to a conversation. Saul said, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. All the young men in the room look this way. All the young men in this room look this way. Do not let anyone look down on you for your youth. Paul said that. Being a man is not a matter of age. It's a matter of character. It's a matter of maturity. It's a matter of heart. He said, you're just a boy. Goliath's been a warrior from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. I'm not sure that instilled a lot of confidence in Saul at that point. Till he shared this. David wasn't some mamby-pamby, heart-planned dude, right? When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, 
rescued the sheep from its mouth. I'd like to hang out with David, amen? When he turned on me, I seized him by his hair. Can you picture it? And struck it and killed it. He said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me. Do you see what he's doing here? You got to get this, guys. From the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then, all of a sudden, Saul wants to get him dressed up. You can read the story for yourself. He puts all this armor, and David's like, man, I can't wear that. And he's like, you know, Saul, I think I'm going to have to take my shepherd's stick and my sling. Got a couple stones, right? I'm going to go out there the way I came in. That's the way God's been working. God gave me the equipment. I'm going to run into this challenge that God's calling me into. So David goes, drops his care package off. Gets a sling and a stick. And old Goliath comes out. Can you see it? Are you there with me? Nine foot Goliath. David looking square in the eye and all these men behind watching and saying, our fate is in his hands. And here's how it rolls out. He took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag. And with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. Goliath didn't know he was dealing with a man. He thought he saw a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David, same guy that had the care package, Looks this dude square in the eye. He says, listen, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Like he had all this stuff. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He said, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David's like, I'm gonna step up and defend God's honor. And those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he'll give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reached into his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. Guys, what is in here? What is in here? Here's what's in here. I, I think it's so powerful. God, when he looks for a man and looks at his heart, he's looking for a man who's going to speak up and he's looking for men who will step up. Men step up. That's what David did. Men step up. David decided to step into the opportunity, into the challenge. What does that mean? Don't miss what I'm getting ready to say. Several things strike me about David. First and foremost, David was willing to step up in the small things before he ever stepped up in the really big things. All the guys listen to me. Gals, you listen in, but guys, listen to me. Guys, we have this infatuation with making a big impact. I'm gonna be a leader. I'm gonna do something big. I'm gonna make a big impact. 
And yet the truth is, if you and I want to be men that step up, what God's calling us to do is to step up into the opportunity that's right in front of us today. So it's like, man, I'm going to lead hundreds and thousands in a business and be successful. And God's saying, I want you to step up today and be a sacrificial leader in your wife's life. I want you to step up today and be a spiritual guardian in your family's life. I want you to step up today and lead. Men who aren't faithful in the small things won't be ready when God places them in the middle of the giant-sized challenge that he has for them. Men who want to lead have to learn to follow. Do you get that? David simply obeyed his father. All you teenagers who might be in the room, can I talk to you a minute? You want to be a man. You want to be a man after God's heart. Learn to listen to your dad, your mom. You're like, I figured you're going to say that in church, right? Learn to listen. Men who cannot follow leadership scare the liver out of me. David was faithful, able, willing to follow. But not only that, David stepped up, not because of who he was, but because of who God was. Listen close, men. I'm going to tell you something. You know it. The gals might not know it like we know it. But we are told that manhood is about bravado. And what God is looking for is bravery. And they're different. Because bravado says this, I'm a big deal. And so we go in and we try to create a pecking order when we walk into situations. And yet what God is looking for is humble bravery. Bravado says, look at what I can do. Bravery says, I believe in what God can do. And here's why that's important. I'm going to just tell you this because I have some experience. I've been a man for 52 years. How's that? Most men, most men feel insecure and incapable and fearful to do what it is that God has called them to do. Most men, because they're like, I'm not capable, I'm inadequate, most men feel that. It's just the truth. And here's the deal. Because we have been brought up in a culture of bravado, what we do is we avoid it. We avoid what we know God wants us to do because we know we can't succeed at it and no longer can I point and say, look at me, what I'm doing. And yet here's the deal. What God calls us into is not what we can do through our bravado, but what we can do because we choose to listen to him. Because we choose to run into him. Because we choose to trust him. David had a stick and a sling and he said, I believe God. I believe God. Some of us are like, I don't know that I can be the father God wants me to do. And what God is saying, listen, it's not about your bravado. It's about your bravery to trust me into the challenge that I'm calling you into. Men step up. Men step up and take initiative. Men step up and are willing to defend their families. Men step up and train their children. Men step up and take responsibility. Men step up and influence the next generation. Tracking with me? Because what I'm getting ready to say, I want to make sure you're tracking with. 
and I want you to know something. This is only meant to be informational, but you got to hear me. Most studies surveying churches in North America say that children's ministries are predominantly run by and taught by women. You must have read the same studies. Everybody look here a second. And Grace Church Norton Campus is no different. That's not me piling on, picking, step. That's not, it's an observation. When I'm not preaching, here's what I do. I go hang out. Power kids, in the hub. I like to see what's going on. And I'm amazed that the team Sherry has put together downstairs. Incredible, beautiful, smart women who sacrificially give and they teach. When I'm down there, I'll say, hey, Sherry's awesome an incredible team. Some of you are on that team. And I'll say, where's the men? She said, I don't know, Dan. I'm one of them. I'm a man. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. Guys, you know what I'm getting ready to tell you. I was in the fourth grade, elementary school, when I had my first male teacher. I had wonderful women teachers. Fourth grade, first male teacher. I remember fourth grade like it was yesterday. It was the first time I ever heard a man make math make sense to me. It was the first time I ever heard a man make world history make sense to me. It was the first time I ever heard a man begin to make, why in the world do I have to sit through school all day make sense to me? He talked to me like a man. As a little man, I could hear him. Little men and gals need to hear men who will help make Jesus make sense. Men step up. That's what it means. Not meant to be anything other than observation, but I long for the little boys and the little girls to be able to hear from men who will step up. Our culture is bombarding, bombarding us particularly our young people, all kinds of messages. Stay with me. We've got to go somewhere here, okay? You're like, man, this is a serious Sunday. Yeah. It's been on my heart all week. David becomes this national hero, <whistles> defeats Goliath. Boom. They sang songs about him, right? Saul killed his thousands. David his ten thousands. They made him king. He became king. He became a successful king. It's incredible. David do an incredible work, honored king. And you keep reading the story of David and you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring at the time when kings like David go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, and while he was supposed to be out of war, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba. 
the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he, David, care package David, stand in front of King David, look Goliath in the eye, David, slept with her. Then she went back home, and the woman, Bathsheba, conceived. And she sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. The very man who spoke up, the very man who stepped up, let his guard down. And it tells me something about a man after God's heart. That men speak up, men step up, and I want you to write this down, I'm going to flesh it out. Men guard up. In particular, men guard up their heart. Because in Proverbs 4, it says this, above all else, guard your what? Heart, for everything you do flows from it. Men guard their heart because everything they do flows from their heart. So what do men guard their heart against? Can I give you four things and we'll be done? Can I give you four things? I feel like I need to do this. Okay, I realize you're going to thank the children's workers downstairs because I'm going to go a little further than you're used to me going. And I'm not asking permission, but I will ask forgiveness. Is that okay? Because this part of the conversation we got to have. And I'm, a- I'm asking us to have this conversation with all the guys and gals you can listen in. But men guard their heart against complacency first and foremost. David got in trouble when he should have been at war when kings go to war. Instead, he's walking around his rooftop. And all of a sudden, his eyes start roaming. When men aren't stepping up and doing what God's called them to do, they become vulnerable to temptation. When a man's greatest challenge is whether or not he'll win the fantasy football trophy, <laughs> tracking, not, nothing against fantasy football, but when that's his greatest challenge, he's wafted into complacency to his greatest opportunity, which God's called him into. When men step back and say, she'll do it. Listen, I told you this earlier. I, I, I got a wife who, she's the strongest woman I know. Complacency's a piece of cake because she can do it and she can do a lot of things better than me. It's like, well, she'll take care of it. And when men become complacent and they become lazy and they lose their edge, they become vulnerable to temptation. Which makes me think of 1 John 2. Don't love the world, anything in it. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, three things, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. Three things here and then then we're done. You got to get them. First he says, men guard against pride. One thing that we love to do is we love to make sure that we advance our glory. We want people to somehow think we're the big deal. Men. In fact, if you don't believe me, just go home this afternoon, turn your TV on and watch some sports. Okay, and I'm not picking on sports. You won't find a bigger sports fan than me. But if you watch sports long enough, it's all about, right? You ever seen this, right? It's all about what? I'm the big deal, right? 
guys who make millions and millions of dollars, right? Because they were born six feet something and can dunk a basketball and somehow, right, I'm the big deal. And so it's easy to spot in them and it's harder to spot in me. Because the truth is, the truth is as men, when pride begins to get into my heart, I become very consumed with being the big deal. That's why, listen, listen, listen. Guys, I'm gonna give you a secret to something. Maybe you're struggling. Some of you are having trouble with your wife right now, fighting, and, and, and we're gonna talk to women the next two weeks, okay? I promise you, okay? It's gonna be a great talk. It's gonna be wonderful, okay? But that's why some of us get defensive in our conversations with our wives. Like we can never resolve conflict because somehow our pride keeps speaking, Proverbs says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Somehow, the, how do I guard my heart against pride? How do I guard my heart against advancing my own glory? Guys, this is a different sermon, but write this down somewhere. The way to guard your heart against advancing your own glory is become consumed with God's glory. And when that becomes what you're preoccupied with, it puts you in the right spot. He says the pride of life, and then he says the lust of the eyes. I want you to write this down. We're going to have honest conversation. I need to guard against lust. This old-time preacher said this. Some of you maybe have heard his name. Some of you like, I've never heard it before, but his name's Chuck Swindoll. Very wise man. So some of what he says is a little aged, but just listen. It, you'll make the point. Lust is no respecter of persons, It never gives up. It never runs out of ideas. Bolt your front door. It'll rattle the bedroom window, crawl into the living room through the TV screen, or wink at you out of a magazine in the den. Guys, can we just say this is a huge, I don't think the gals will understand exactly what I'm saying to the degree I'm saying it. This is a huge battleground for men today, and no one is exempt. No one's exempt. There's no man in this room exempt from the temptation of it that's not enticed by the curiosity of it and doesn't encounter it daily. It's everywhere. This battleground takes place in the office. It takes place online, in the living room, at the Y, on your cell phone, and on business trips. Our battle with lust ranges from women who flirt with us to secret rendezvous with gals we meet online to fantasies we make up in our own brain. Bible calls this adultery, and literally in Proverbs 5 through 7, it says it's like playing with fire. It's like setting, it's graphic, you read it. It's like putting fire in your lap. You'll get burned, and it's graphic on purpose for a reason. Some of you might be sitting here and saying, well, man, I'm okay because I'm not doing anything with a woman physically. What harm can there be? Jesus said, hey, let me talk about that. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. It's like, hello. Like, what in the world is Jesus saying? 
Jesus is saying this is a battleground every guy deals with. I have conversations with guys constantly about this. I just around my fire pit Friday night had a conversation with a young man about this. We talked about this verse and these, these things that Jesus said. And he said, what? He's like, there'd be a lot of blind guys running around if we do that, right? Amen? Yeah. He's like, what, what does that mean? I said, here's what it means. Ready? Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. He said, what do you mean do whatever it takes? I said, if it means getting rid of your phone, get rid of your phone. He said, you mean go back to a flip phone? I said, amen. Go back to a flip phone. Go to a rotary phone if you have to. I don't know. Do whatever it takes. That's what I said. Not only that, how do we guard our heart? We do whatever it takes. And men, all the men look at me. We help each other. We help each other. We look at each other square in the eye and we quit being impressed with the image we portray and we realize that each of us at some point or time has struggled with this very thing. And we get in groups where we look at each other and we help each other out. We're real, we're raw, and we help each other. We hold each other accountable. If your wife is your only accountability partner, you might be in trouble. Because I've yet to find the husband who's going to like, hey, sweetheart, I was tempted to look at pornography today. Usually doesn't go well. See what I'm saying? Men who will find men, you do whatever it takes. Men help each other. And then if you are married in this room, I'm going to tell you, what do we do to guard our heart? You chase your wife. You love your wife. You pursue your wife. You make love to your wife. Yes, I said that. That's what you do. Men guard their hearts against lust. Men don't pretend like they never battle it. And then last but not least, and that clocks against me, men guard against the love of money. The lust of the flesh is what 1 John says. Men guard against being consumed with the love of more and more and more. I don't have time to show you, but write down this passage, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul tells a young man there that the love of money plunges many men into ruin. Here's the point. I can either love money as my God or I can love God with my money. I've seen men who have who've literally forfeited their family in order to get more money because they need more. And all Paul is saying is this, is Satan uses our love of money just like a bait a fisherman would use and it lures us away from what God says is important. Men guard up their heart. Men speak up. Men step up. Men guard up. Everybody look here. Because the question you should be asking is, thanks, Dan, but what in the world do men who screwed up do? Because some of you are sitting here and like, 
And you got to write this particular passage down. You got to go home and read it. But it's Psalm 51. It's written by a guy whose name is David. After he screwed up royally. And here's what men do who screw up. Men who screw up speak up. They confess their sin. They call it what God calls it. Men who screw up don't rationalize it, don't justify it. Well, you know, if my wife was easier to live with, if my kids were just more... That's not men do. Men speak up and say, God, what I have done is sin. I've screwed up. I'm going to call it what you call it. You see it as it is. I'm going to call it as it is. That's what men who screw up do. They call it as it is. They speak up and then they step up. The Bible word for that is repentance. They not only confess, but they turn and say, I'm going to now trust you. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to totally change where I'm heading. And then they guard up. They have this sense of renewal to say, God, I am going to stand as a watchman over my heart. When men don't know what it means to be a man, they hurt women and children. They abdicate their responsibility. And homes suffer, marriages are compromised, and culture begins to deteriorate. And I'm standing here today, guys, as a man who has screwed up, calling out to other men who have screwed up at different times. And saying, today God is calling us and inviting us into an adventure called manhood. For some of us, an adventure to love our wives fiercely. To love our wives fiercely. To guard and invest in our children intentionally. To speak into our church and our community deliberately because God looks at a man's heart so God you see our hearts this morning and in this room are men some of us have screwed up and I pray that you'd help us to speak up and step up and then guard up others of us are afraid because the bravado culture tells us we don't have what it takes and yet help us to step up and trust you that you're calling us into something that you're going to equip us for. There are wives sitting in this room, and I pray that this sermon would in no way be leveraged at all in, in their husband's life, but that it would simply be fueled to pray for their man, that it would be fueled to encourage their man, there are single gals in this room and my prayer is this, is that they would reach out for a man's heart before they ever reach out for his hand and that they would be devoted to finding a man after your heart. And God, I pray as a result of us stepping into that opportunity that marriages would thrive, that homes would be healed and find hope and that children would be called into the adventure of following you and that our church, our church would be strengthened because children and teenagers would hear from men 
hear their stories. God, we need your help. I need your help as a man. Thank you for calling us into this adventure and then walking with us into it. I love you and I need you. I pray this in Jesus' name.